Well, good morning, everyone. Sorry for those technical delays. They will strike all of us at some point or another. But one thing that can't be delayed is the importance of talking about God's Word. So that's what we're going to do here for the next few minutes. We're going to be in John chapter 21, the last chapter of the Gospel of John. And I've titled this, Jesus' Final Words. I know that Jesus' actual last words are right before he ascended up to heaven. And that's recorded in Acts, the first chapter. But in this case, John is describing the life of Jesus from his perspective and what he wanted us to know. And we're going to look at what Jesus says to his disciples in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John. So here we go. Reading, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. This was also known as the Sea of Galilee. We usually know it that way. But uh, they knew very well that naming it after the Caesar, the emperor, was probably good points to score with the Roman government. So the Sea of Tiberias is also the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself. Who, were, who was here? Who was here when Jesus showed himself to his disciples? You have uh, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin. King James says Didymus, fancy dancy word for twin. You have Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And it's good to know that recreation is something we all can engage in. Recreation is not something that is wrong. It's not wrong to take a little time off. He goes fishing. Should be happen to like to fish, go fish. They said to him, we're going with you also. So he talked his buddies to the other disciples into going fishing. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Well, fishing was primarily done at night uh, back in this first century time frame. I mean, going fishing at night is usually the best way to catch fish anyway, as any fisherman would tell you. So the way it would work, the boats would go out onto the lake, and they would have torches on the boats, and they would hold them over the side looking down. They didn't have the fancy radar thing that could scan under the boat and tell you where the school of fish might be. So they would hold the light out over the side of the boat, and when they saw something, they would throw the nets overboard. The nets had weights around the edges with a string attached to it, otherwise you'd never get your net back. So the nets would go down, and as it fell, it would cover some of the fish. When you pulled that string, it would tighten the edge of the net where the weights were, where the rocks were, pull it together, and you have a ball of net, right? That hopefully had some fish in it. So they'd been doing this all night and had caught nothing. They had caught nothing. Zip. A failure. A failure. Terrible fishermen. It's as if I was with them. It's as if I was there. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. So here he is appearing to the disciples. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. One reason we're going to see is because he's pretty far away from them. Then Jesus said to them, calling out from the shore, Children, have you caught, have you any food? And they answered to him, No. And Jesus said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast. Now that's a lesson of faith right there. They've been fishing all night. For all they knew, the fish had packed up and gone to another state, right? I mean, the fish were nowhere nearby. Jesus, this stranger, they don't know it's Jesus yet, says, throw it on the right side. And they do, right? So they cast, and they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Remember they would throw it out kind of a, and the edge of the net had the weights of the 
rocks in it. And so as it fell, it got a lot of fish in it. They pulled the rope to pull the bottom edge and the edge of the net together to make that ball of net. <laughs> they can't get it on the ship because it's got too many fish in it. Talk about a change of circumstances. Nothing all night and then suddenly the net is so full they can't pull the board. Sometimes we simply need to trust God and do what he says. But I want to understand why. Why would God tell me to do this? Why does God want me to do that? What's the, the stuff behind it? God says love our neighbor. Well, what if my neighbor isn't likable? God didn't say love your likable neighbor. Right? He said love your neighbor. Sometimes we simply need to do what we're asked to do without, excuse me, could you explain that as kind of a response? They threw it over, and in this case, quoting from the Old Testament, sometimes we just simply don't, should not rely upon our own understanding. I don't understand everything I'm asked to do. I don't understand why some things seem to be perfectly fine with God in the worship service and other things are not. What I need to understand is what God has asked me to do. And do it. I'm not going to rely upon my own understanding or ask for clarification on these things. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, who was on the boat, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Again, John is first. Throughout the Gospel of John, this is John, the writer of the Gospel, who's referred to in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He seems to be the first to see Things that are true. You know, what a wonderful, wonderful way to see the world. It may have just been getting light out, right? At dawn. We're talking about it's in the morning. Dawn is coming on. Maybe John's eyes, he's young. Maybe they were simply the clearest. All right, I have to put my glasses on to see what's in front of me right here. I can see pretty well far distance. But as we get old, sometimes that's difficult. John may have been the one with the best eyes. Or was he the one with the insight, an inner sight, to be able to tell that because they had caught nothing, suddenly this stranger on the shore says, throw the net over the right side, and they can't even haul it in. Maybe he saw what the others had missed. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it. You would have essentially uh, you know, some kind of boxers or something like that, and you would have some kind of a cloak or toga-like thing. You're out in the middle of the boat. It's, it's going to be pretty warm. You know, he had, they'd all had that. He put that on and jumps into the water. He plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits. One reason they're having to bring the boat in is there's no indication they've got the net on board. So I think they've got the net pulled up by the boat. And you can imagine the paddling, right, trying to get this net with all the fish to the shore. So they're 200 cubits. 200 cubits is about 300 feet. 300 feet. So they were a football field, more or less, from the shore. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Have you ever swam or swum? I never know which one it is. Have you ever swam 200 cubits, 300 feet? I can remember as like a six-year-old failing the swim test at the, the Boys and Girls Club over off Thompson Lane. Failed it. I can swim well enough in a pool. I can swim well enough to get to one side or the other without going completely under. I'm not about to jump and swim 300 feet. Peter 
hears it's the Lord, it occurs to him, it must be Jesus. We just had a more or less a miracle with these 300 fish. Whoosh! 300 feet, he swims to shore. Peter does this without a moment's hesitation. Does Peter want to be with Jesus? Absolutely. Yes, he does. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land. Remember I told you they must have had it beside the boat as they're trying to get the boat to the land. He drags it up on the shore full of large fish. And then we're told here a very peculiar thing. 153 fish. All sorts of attempts have been made throughout history to try to explain some mystical meaning for why there's 153 fish. All right? Does it have some sort of meaning or is it just this is how many there are? I mean, John has all sorts of double meanings in the Gospel of John. So let me share a couple of them with you. Take it for what they're worth. Cyril of Alexandria said that 153 must mean 100 plus 50 plus 3. Well, that math is correct. And he said that 100 is the fullness of the Gentiles being pulled into God. 100 is all the Gentile people in the world. 50 is the remnant of Israel, the Jewish people who would accept God, Jesus. And 3 stood for the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, the math works, but there's no real particular reason to think, well, ah, Cyril got it right there. That must be it. Augustine. The real big philosopher, 400 A.D., he said that there are ten commandments in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament you have seven gifts of the Spirit. So that's 17, 10 and 7. Well, it turns out when you take 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 da -da -da, plus 17, the sum of 1 through 17 turns out to be 153. So he said, so there you go. Well, Augustine was awfully smart, but that's kind of strange, right? And then you have one other one I'll share with you. It's Jerome. He's the one that translated the Bible into Latin. It was used for like a thousand years in the Middle Ages. He just simply said that there are 153 different types of fish in the world. And so the 153 simply says that the church and the gospel is for everyone. Well, I agree with him that the church and the gospel is for everyone, but there's a whole lot more than 153 types of fish. I don't think they had a great white shark in the Sea of Galilee, so I know at least there were a couple of types of fish uh, that weren't in that net. If there were, they shouldn't be dragging it on, on the shore, should they? So it may simply well be that the symbolic, uh, real meaning of this is that the net is about to bust. And by trusting God, they had more than they could ever, ever need, ever want. When we do what God tells us to do, we're going to be blessed. It, is going to be blessings we cannot even imagine. The, the sure situation here is as if they may never have had a net this full of fish before. Why is it so full of fish? Jesus said to throw it on the right side, and they did it. That's good enough for me. I don't know about these other three. If you like one of them, it's okay. But I, I don't have any question whether those are real. So continuing on, and although there were so many fish in the net, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Remember, it was morning. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who, who are you? They didn't want to ask who he was, uh, knowing that it was the Lord. They're still kind of afraid. They knew he had died. He's been resurrected. They've seen him twice already. Some of them have. But they're still kind of afraid. You and I probably would be too. Someone kind of a little slack here. You and I would be too. Then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them that had been cooking on the coals and the fish. 
Again, John is pointing out to his audience at that time that Jesus was a real man in addition to God. Jesus eats here. So when he is resurrected, it is a bodily resurrection. It's not a ghost. There's no ghost floating around here on the shore of Galilee. Jesus is God 100% and man 100% when he's here on the earth, as much as that is so confusing. But here, he's going to eat with them. So it's a very important point that he's not some ghost floating around somewhere. This is his real body that had died on the cross that is alive again. That is alive again. And we're told now, this is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he had been raised from the dead. So they'd seen him. Some of the disciples had seen him twice already. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? It's, it's got to be the disciples. That's the only other people around. He's not asking if you love me more than the fish. You know, do you love me more than these other uh, disciples who are here? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs or feed my sheep, some translations say. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He then said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He was upset because Jesus had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. First of all, right there, that's a very true statement. Jesus knows everything. God knows everything. He knows what I did this morning. He knows what I did last night. He knows everything I think. He knows. And so in this way, Jesus knows that Peter loves him. He's making a point here. He's making a point. Since, and he said to him the third time, of course, do you love me? And Peter had been upset that he had asked him the third time. Why three times? Why is Jesus asking him three times, do you love me? It could be because Peter had denied Jesus three times. Back before Jesus is crucified, Peter denies even knowing who Jesus is. The last time with oaths and cursing. And so it's part perhaps of this rehabilitation. You denied me three times. Look at this. You've now said that you love me three times. It's not that it's a cancellation. It doesn't cancel out so much. But everybody around is hearing this. Everybody around is hearing this, and they knew Peter had denied Jesus. This is Jesus' way, I suspect, of letting Peter know and the disciples who are also here that Peter is forgiven, that he is forgiven, that he's back in good standing, if you will. I mean, how Peter went out and wept bitterly after denying Jesus. I mean, he didn't betray him and turn him in, but he said, I don't know the man. You know? Sometimes we have said the same thing. When we know we should not be doing something, we do it anyway. I'm a Christian. But when we fail Jesus, we're essentially saying, just like Peter did, I don't know the man. So why was it necessary to record it? Peter's denial here is a very pivotal event. Everybody would have known it, certainly in the early church and certainly throughout the first century. I mean, they knew the story of Jesus' life and death, and here's denial is a big part of that. And so Christians needed to know that even a mistake or sin as big, as colossal, as saying, I don't know who he is, can be forgiven. You know, to God, it's very true there are no small and big sins. 
Every sin is a failure to live like I am supposed to live. Some of them are so public. This is an incredibly public thing. So, so huge, even in the sight of other people. Jesus is indicating to Peter that that is forgiven. Very important. I want to talk about this. Uh, Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself, essentially, you put your own clothes on, and you walked where you wished. And when you were old, you're going to stretch out your hands, another will put your clothes on, you gird you, and carry you where you don't want to go, where you don't wish to go. This he spoke, this is a comment by John, who's writing this. This he spoke to signify by what death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Essentially, when you were young, you could do what you wanted. There's going to come a time because, really and truly, because you have said, you know I love you, Jesus, that you're going to face a time where you can't go where you want to go. And you're going to be led someplace you don't want to go. Peter ends up, tradition tells us, being crucified in Rome. And so this affirmation of loving Jesus, of his love for Jesus, brought him a task to live his life with a future to where he was going to die for that love for Jesus. His task was to feed the lambs of Jesus, the disciples, and then to go his last task, giving his life for the Lord. Okay? I want to talk real quickly, maybe a little bit later. There is always a way back to God. There is always. The worry I have had for a long time, as you see some of our young people, and when, when people are young, you make mistakes in part because you haven't made similar mistakes before. You haven't learned by experience. And somebody that's young will make a mistake that, as an older person, we might think this is a whopper, right? This is a big mistake. But to the young person, they don't have the experience to know that if they hang in there, things will get better. And the younger person might, may think, my, and this is what, it, it worries me all the time. Some young person might think, may think, my life is over. It's not. I don't care what it is that somebody has done. Your life is never over because God has a purpose for you. God will decide when our lives are over. There is always a way back. You have to come to yourself, just like the parable of the prodigal son. You have to realize what situation you're in and how you got yourself there. And then you've got to get up and go back to God. Peter did that. There's always, always a way back. Don't ever, the devil's the one suggesting your life is over. Don't ever listen to what the devil might say. Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved who would also lean on his breast at the supper. This is John. And he said, Lord, who, uh, the, one, the one at the supper, he said, Lord, who is it that betrays you? Peter seeing him said to Jesus, well, you know, you just told me what my future holds. What about this guy? What about this guy over here? What's going to happen to him? You've told me what my future holds. What about this individual? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't be worrying about what's going to happen to other people. You put your mind where it needs to be to do what you need to do. Don't worry about the Joneses. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. And this saying, we're told, went out among the brethren that the disciple, this disciple would not die. If I will that he remains until I come again, what is that to you that went out that, well, John isn't going to die. 
But John here clarifies, Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I want that he remains here alive until I come, what is that to you? One reason he had to do that is because uh, John is writing at the end of the first century, probably some 60 plus years later. John's an old guy, certainly in first century terms. These days there are a lot of people his age, but John is writing, he's probably 80, 90 plus years old, and that just really didn't happen in the first century. There was no antibiotics, there were no first aid clinics. I mean, you know, this is amazing. And the legend grew that maybe John really is never going to die. And so he it feels it's real important to say, no, 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 no. You've got to listen to what Jesus says. He said, if I want him to remain, what is that to you? And everybody's wondering what's going to happen to John. He tells you, your job is you follow me. You follow me. John makes sure to point that out, that that legend that grew was not correct. So John lived very, very late, right? And he had the opportunity to teach so many of the people who were important to the church, important to Christianity, important to the cause of Jesus in the second century. What a tremendous gift that someone who had been with Jesus lived long enough to keep telling the story to all those people for all those years. Well, guess what? Every day that I'm alive, every day that you're alive, is a similar gift. We have the opportunity to tell people about Jesus every day we're here. Whether that's two more days, an hour, or 50 years, don't let the opportunities pass us by. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John closes the book by putting his own seal of testimony saying, I saw these things. These things really happened. So you can imagine if he's writing this out and hands it to people saying, this is what I saw. Here's my testimony about Jesus as he hands it off. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which is they were written one by one. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. A bit of exaggeration here. I mean, he says, I suppose. That's, that's not a statement of fact. But there is a lot of other stuff Jesus did that's not in here. That's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The world itself could not contain him, he says, because he made such a difference in the lives of so many people and still does today. Still does today. What might some of these other things be? What might some of these other things be that Jesus did? Well, I'm certain there are more things that Jesus did. It would have shown Jesus breaking down barriers. If you want to talk about what the gospel really is all about in one word, to me that word is reconciliation. Yeah, that's a big word, but reconciliation. The gospel is about reconciling man and woman, you and me, to God. We left God by our own choices. We decided to sin. We did what we wanted to do, and we broke that relationship. And on our own, we can't make it good. We can't get back. Jesus came to give us the opportunity to be reconciled to God. Paul actually says, be ye reconciled to God. But it's not just the relationship between us and God that's busted. It's the relationship between each of us. 
But in the first century, you've got groups of people that hate each other. Jews hated Gentiles. Gentiles hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Men treated women like dirt because they were just property. The man, the Jewish man didn't like what his wife did. Give her a right in divorcement and say, get out. Humanity was broken on the horizontal way of between each of us and the vertical of getting back to God. Jesus came and before he gives his life to reconcile us to God, to give us that option, that, that pathway back to God, he spent his life reconciling groups of people. Think in the Gospel of John where Jesus is at the well. In John 4, the woman of Samaria, he's talking to a woman. Teachers didn't do that in Jewish circles. He's talking to a Samaritan who didn't do that either. Boom, boom, twice. He's breaking down barriers and giving us an example. When you see a barrier, kick it over. What have we done in the 2,000 years since then? Every chance we get, we put a wall up. We put a barrier up. For so many years, that barrier was between, let's just say, white and black. It was. David Lipscomb in the late 1800s, he had been at this church. He actually brought, he had a, a young black girl living with he and his wife, brought her to church. Leaders of that church came up and said, she can't be here. She needs to be with her own people. There are a lot of things I love David Lipscomb for, but his answer to that was, I thought God's people were her people. You see a barrier that we people put up, kick it over because that's what Jesus would have done. Kick barriers over. Very, very important. We don't have all those instances of when Jesus knocked a barrier over we've got enough of them. There would have been more of those. Jesus showed his love and concern for people. He feels the grief when Lazarus dies. He sees the hurt and he cries. He weeps. It's okay to be sad when things happen we don't like. We've got to show love for other people. Love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Anyone near you. Anyone near you. And it showed Jesus' obedience to God. He didn't want to die on the cross, but he said, if there's any way possible, let this go away. Don't put me through this. Yet, what did he say? Not my will, but your will. We need to obey God and follow Him and live for Him instead of worrying about what I want and living for myself. The cause of nearly every sin is I'm choosing what I want to do instead of what I know God wants me to do. The story of Jesus is in many ways still being written in the hearts of His followers some 2,000 years later. John ends the story right there. The rest of the story has been up to us. In the last 2,000 years, we've had some really good points. Some really good parts of the story, but that's a really bad ones. <clears throat> what does the story look like from here on? What's the story of the life of Jesus to you? What are you writing in that story of Jesus? Have you had the call of Jesus and been ignoring it? If you're not yet a member of God's family, that is the story, the part of the story that you're writing. Jesus called for me to come home, and I didn't listen. Please, if you're watching at home, please don't let that be you. 
You need to realize that you're living a life of sin. You need to come back to God. Confess the wrong that you've been doing. Change your life from wrong to right. Confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And die to yourself in the waters of baptism so you can be raised to walk a new person. Child of God. Or is the call of Jesus to you been one that you heard but later walked away from? You're a member of God's family, but you've still been choosing to do what you want to do much more than what God wants you to do. You can always come back to God. Peter can come back after saying, I don't know who the man is. There's nothing you or I can do that God will not forgive if we come to ourselves like that prodigal son, get up and go back to the Father. The time coming back to God is right now as we stand in sync.